Based on the novel by Gamora author Roberto Saviano, Comspiranas, a vivid coming-of-age story set in mafia-controlled Naples that IndieWire calls a gripping modern riff on Goodfellas. Opens Friday, August 2nd in New York and expands August 9th to select cities. Inspired by a genuine curiosity and love for people, art, and family, and a willingness to explore, Anton Yelchin began a career as an actor at age nine. Through his writings, photography, and original music, as well as interviews with family, friends, and colleagues, including John Cho, Zoe Saldana, Kristen Stewart, and Chris Pine, Love Antosha is a celebration of the actor's extraordinary, unfinished life. Opening Friday, August 2nd at LA's New Art Theater, and Friday, August 9th at NYC's Quad Cinema. Visit AntonYelchinDoc.com for more information. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Nicholas Rapold, the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the cover story of our July-August issue. Tarantino's latest made a splash at the Cannes Film Festival, and now it's been having great success in theaters. All of that despite being a change of pace for Tarantino. The story is set in the twilight period of 1969 in a small world of Hollywood actors and movie making, alongside more fringe elements represented by the Manson family. It's a largely affectionate movie with a lot of room to hang out in and terrific actors to hang out with, Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie for starters. To discuss the film, I sat down with Michael Koreski, longtime film comment contributor and co-editor of Reverse Shot, and Maddie Whittle, programming assistant at Film at Lincoln Center. But before we begin, we do have to give a fair warning to our listeners. In order to talk about the movie's accomplishments and its significance in full, we did ultimately talk about the movie's story in full, which probably includes parts of the plot you might not have heard about before. With that said, let's go to our discussion about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Hello, welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name's Nick Rapold, I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment, and this is our podcast about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and an upcoming director called Quentin Tarantino (laughs) that you might be hearing a little more about after this weekend. Um, uh, the movie, of course, is our cover story for our July-August issue. So even before we begin, I'll just plug that. Be sure to pick up a copy or subscribe. Um, and for this discussion, I'm very pleased to be joined by... Michael Koreski. And Maddie Whittle. And uh, each of you are very fresh off seeing this movie. Is that correct? It's true. Yeah. yeah I saw it on Saturday, which was two days ago. I saw it last night, and that's one night ago, and um, I'm still processing, He's so, still processing as it. they say. Yes, right. Uh, I, I, I saw it at Cannes, and I was going to see it again, but it was sold out. Um, and so, I mean, that kind of testifies to how successful it's been. I guess it's his most, his biggest weekend opening, money-wise, um, which is pretty impressive because I feel like Pulp Fiction was a pretty, pretty like made over $100 million, yeah. um, which I mentioned just because when you think about these movies, it's it's kind of funny to think of especially this movie it, it's really interesting to think of a lot of people coming to see this movie yeah i know i mean it's always funny to think about tarantino in terms of box office i don't i mean <laughs> I, I, i'm sure he enjoys the success and we want him to be successful so they keep making interesting movies in hollywood but i every time i see one i think well 
that one's going to flop. And then I'm <laughs> usually proven wrong. I remember um, coming out of Inglorious Bastards and actually texting with uh, Nick Pinkerton. And I said, have you seen it yet? And he said, yeah, it kicked ass. Has it flopped yet? <laughs> and it actually ended up making $38 million that weekend, which is only a little right. bit less than what this made over the weekend. Right, yeah. As well as garnering, because that's the only thing that happens with awards. People garner them. Uh, garnering an award for um, Christoph Waltz, right? Yeah. Right. And then he got another his one. American career. Yeah. 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 Two two Oscars, two Tarantino movies That's for right. Christoph Waltz. Truly, his muse is Tarantino. He's the Diane Weist. <laughs> with to Woody Allen as Christoph Waltz, Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> you heard it here first. Uh, so I, you know, we can begin anywhere, but you know, what what did you think of it? I mean, who wants to start? I, you know, I've, I feel like in just the. 48 hours, not even 48 hours since I saw it, my feelings have already shifted on this one. I When I came out of the film, I, um, I well, that was fun. Like, that was a really enjoyable two and a half hours. And uh, I don't know, um, I, di- I didn't know what it was going to, what parts of it were going to stick with me. Hmm. And so now I've had a chance to talk about it and think about it and uh, read a little bit more about it and... Um, I think it's a really, I think it's really a very good movie. It's just, mm. just apart from the tradition of Tarantino's, uh, the, the, his films, it's, I, I think it stands as, uh, a really, um, original achievement and, yeah. um, we can get into why, but yeah. I'm, I'm firmly on the pro side of this divide. Yeah. I it just occurred to me, I don't know I don't know that there will be will be listeners who don't know what the movie's generally about, but I guess we could flesh that out a bit. Mm. Um so <laughs> where to begin? The year was nineteen sixty nine. <laughs> Everything was about to change in America. Um there were hippies and people were scared of them. And then there was the Manson family and then the sixties were over. But um, broad strokes, broad strokes, broad strokes. strokes. Uh, But this particular movie is about a a a, an actor, a TV actor played by Leonardo DiCaprio um, named Rick Dalton, Rick Dalton. Uh, And he's kind of a bit, you know, hit a dull spot in his career and is trying to restart it. Um, And he has a devoted um, second uh, called um, Cliff Booth, Cliff Booth, um, Cliff Pitt. No, wait. (laughs) <laughs> Brad Pitt plays Cliff Booth. They do um, collapse into one another. Cliff Pitt. Cliff Pitt is a great character name. <laughs> if we're keeping this part of the podcast, I just want to put that out there. Cliff Pitt. Um, <clears throat> so who's his devoted like body double and kind of stuntman and you know just his support system basically. Uh, the guy he, he drinks with um, and and kind of a humble character. Chauffeur. His chauffeur. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of everything. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, if he. If Rick Dalton smoked weed, I guess he would also supply him with weed, mm-hmm. but he doesn't. What's what's the line? He's his beer doesn't need. Doesn't he say something like that? Yeah. What is that? His his beer doesn't need a boost or something <laughs> like that. Um, so yeah, of the of the two, I guess he's a little less plugged in to to the time. Um, and yeah, basically a lot of the movies them just kind of hanging out as as Rick Dalton is 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 kind of getting a new gig working on a western where he plays a sort of villain. And and then, meanwhile, um, is this too much detail? <laughs> meanwhile, the Brad Pitt character is just 
ambling along um, and and getting in, getting intersecting his path with the Manson family ranch because he picks up a girl by the side of the road. Um, so that kind of launches off a whole other trajectory. Um, and I guess I can kind of leave it at that with, with, I mean, it's a Tarantino movie, so you know things are going to come back at some point. And um, it's important to mention, I think, that uh, Sharon Tate is also yes, sort of, of moving on her own trajectory yes. that is in parallel with... Yes, that um, is that is the third, uh, the third thread um, of it and I guess has kind of brought up its own debate over whether how that character is portrayed and um, we can talk about that as well and she's uh, Rick Dalton's next door neighbor I guess that's the kind of right thread. that's yes. right with with her hubby um, Roman Polanski yes. who's played by I guess a Polish actor that I don't know yeah I, don't know. I wasn't familiar yeah yeah, no yeah. Um, they have a nice car uh, and, and they drive at lots of places <laughs> but anyway that's just the general overview of it uh, but Michael, were you bothered by Margot Robbie's um, line count? Um, I mean, just to take a step back, mm-hmm. I I like the film very much. I think that there are questions that it raises that it does not have to answer about representation mm-hmm. and about representation of violence specifically. We've been having debates and conversations about how Tarantino represents violence for for decades at this point. And I don't think we're ever going to settle the matter or decide upon what a correct or incorrect version of violence is or representation of violence is supposed to be. And I think every new film, whether it's Inglorious Bastards or Django Unchained or this film, every new film just puts a new wrinkle in that conversation. And I think their conversation is worth having. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna come out and say like whether I think that the Margot Robbie Sharon Tate character was like the right way of doing that or the wrong way of doing it. I don't know. All I know is that that was the way it was done and I, and I'm interested and intrigued by it. And I like to talk about what's on the screen and not what's not on the screen. Um, so I thought that she, I thought that Margot Robbie's performance was wonderful. I think that it's, it is often a silent performance and that doesn't mean that there isn't depth to it. Interestingly though, it's the final scene of her performance is, invisible but not silent well when we get to that yeah. and i i would love to talk about that yeah. i'm i'm deeply moved by the end of that film i don't know yeah, I mean, oh very feel, much but. i was very emotional afterward um I, I think that sort of snuck up on me even though you know kind of know where the movie's going if you know the tarantino project right. the way that it happens i think right. it does sneak up on you um but yeah i'm actually just so I'm so touched by the choice to represent sharon tate at this point in her career as this um person full of promise as this person full of life and vivacity and um just the second that you see her so much life radiates off her and that's a lot to do with margot Robbie's mm-hmm. presence and performance and i think that i would love to talk about what she brings not what he doesn't right. give her yeah. i guess yeah that makes sense yeah no yeah i experienced it totally as a tribute to her and i don't i think that a large part of that was contributed by margot Robbie's. A performance and I think um, you know you can have a debate as to how much was intended by Quentin versus how much was um, brought to the role by Roby uh, but I thought that for a part with relatively little dialogue she really did sort of jump off the screen in a way that um, made Sharon Tate real in a way that you know in i'm 28 
I became aware of Sharon Tate first as a victim of the Manson family. Mm -hmm. I uh, am not um, extensively familiar with her film work. Um, And so this tribute to her that this performance offered uh, humanized her in a way that I have never um, seen. Uh, And I, I think in some ways, the choice to uh, give her a fairly limited line count felt deliberate and you know it, it's getting called out but I think in some ways it, it really um, was essential to the the way in which she's presented as sort of a, a tragic figure who whose life was cut short and who there's a reason why she's presented as not having um the agency that we might want her character to have i think that's i think that's really true i mean who who really knows about intentionality and all those things but um i think every time well our movie culture now doesn't discuss things they we litigate and relitigate things (laughs) so um the whole discussion around you know tarantino and female characters is um it's a it's a good one to have of course but if you look at death proof if you look at inglorious bastards if you look at pulp fiction he has no shortage of um central female characters who are as loquacious as the male characters if not more so i think this movie is surprisingly light generally on the curly cues and acrobatics of dialogue Mm -hmm. i was really surprised how much of this movie is quiet yes Mm -hmm. certainly brad pitt and leo dicaprio have their 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 kind of bull sessions and their masculine tete-a-tetes um but there's a lot of shots of driving through la there's a lot of getting from here to there i think the thing that moves me the moves me the most about this movie is just the feeling of moving from one place to another Mm -hmm. and you don't see that in a lot of movies jackie brown had a little bit of that too but this kind of pushes it to an almost extreme where i couldn't believe i was watching this in, in a in a packed sold out multiplex this 165 minute movie that where there's so much downtime yeah, and yeah. it's actually I think that contributes to the the fairy tale quality of it. It's very much like a, a, a there's a feeling of a quest or like a, a sort of a peripatetic narrative um, of moving through a space. Um, to get to your point about the the sort of silence of this film, I think that's also an important element of of the Sharon Tate character and Margot Robbie's performance because the as far as I'm concerned the sort of emotional climax of the movie is the scene where she goes and watches herself in a film in a movie theater mm-hmm. and has no dialogue because she's in a movie theater watching a film. But the uh, the performance that she gives in that moment to me was incredibly moving and just sort of making a statement about the work of an artist, even an artist, like a beautiful young woman in 1969 who was heavily objectified by her industry and was probably um not given the respect that she deserved uh at the time and i think that that scene says so much without having her say a single word yeah and how and what a beautiful choice to actually show the film with <laughs> the actual Sharon Tate. Yes. Yeah. So there's this wonderful moment, right? Well, it's, it's more than one moment. It's that whole sequence where Margot Robbie is watching Sharon Tate mm-hmm. and they don't, uh, Quentin Tarantino doesn't like put right. Margot Robbie digitally into the Wrecking Crew, which is the name of the right. movie that they're with Dean Martin that they're watching. It's really this moment of incredible 
um, empathy be- between one actor and another. Mm-hmm. And I was in, I was really moved by that. And I feel mm-hmm. like you're watching. Who knows what was happening? What she was really watching at the time as an actress, Margot Robbie. What yeah. what she was re- responding to. But when you watch her face, you think that she's responding to Sharon Tate. Yeah. And it's it's um it's just like you know transcends time and yeah. speaks across decades and it's it's a wonderful choice yeah and that it could have been that that sequence could have been about an actor's vanity about an actor liking to see themselves on mm-hmm. the screen but instead it's about pride in work which yeah. again it, this comes across without a single word being spoken which yeah. is a testament yeah. i think to the performance yeah and i and, I, and in a way it feels there just feels like a closeness between uh, Tarantino as a director and his actors in a scene like that, because it feels to me like a genuine thing that like a upcoming act actor would be doing, mm-hmm. going to see themselves, you know, or just really going to see themselves the first time, enjoying that little frisson of of being part of the attractions of a film. Um, I feel like that happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, but <laughs> so it felt kind of genuine in that way. I also like that it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't like guess the film was the point of it you know there wasn't like a you know some sort of inside aspect insider aspect to it it wasn't like you were supposed to recognize the film necessarily um you know and um i freely admit i had to look it up i looked it up uh so there's also it wasn't a movie that tarantino it wasn't a scene that tarantino was was taking over with his like you know movie mad kind of cinephile knowledge it was it was centered on her um, and I don't know, it, it was also a scene that kind of plugged into something uh, that's always interested me about Tarantino movies, which is taking, and has been part of his like novelty value, I guess, but him taking like really ordinary scenes of, of life and either applying them to like extraordinary or bizarre people, mm-hmm. you know, that's been like a touch touchstone of a lot of things, you know, like in Pulp Fiction, like going to the, the drug dealer's house and it's just him in a bathrobe or something like that. Or the opening of Pulp Fiction, really, where they're just chatting about cheeseburger. That's like a huge basis of like the novelty of his appeal was was doing that kind of, you know, very recognizable movie type, doing something very ordinary. Um, and, and this is kind of akin to that in a way. You, you, someone going to the movies, but it's the actress. But it didn't feel like it was for that kind of, not cheap effect but for that kind of effect it was more this is an actual character doing this mm-hmm. thing well also the fact that it's uh, it's cross-cut with what's going on with the two other main characters mm-hmm. yeah. brad pitt's cliff and leo dicaprio's rick um and you kind of start to understand he's so tarantino is so good at structure he's so good at mm. um and even in a film like this it seems just like a kind of lazy hangout movie that structure comes into focus as mm-hmm. it does so often with his movies and um, this is one of the f- his few films that's not really segmented into chapters or anything it has some it has it gives you the date on, um of an every new day but it doesn't really have like a clear structure but in that sequence it really crystallizes because so sh- mm-hmm. she's seeing herself on screen meanwhile rick is having sort of a trying day on the set where he's playing the heavy in this right. kind of BTV Western. Mm-hmm. And um, and then um, Cliff is having his own kind of disrupted day where he's just kind of trying to, he's, I think he's like fixing an antenna and he's trying to get different things done for his boss. Yeah. But he really <laughs> wants to be on set. Like he wants to be 
doing stunts. He does, but yeah. and then he but he runs afoul of one mm-hmm. of the um, one of the Manson commune girls, and so he ends up on the Spawn movie ranch, which is where the Manson family yeah. set up shop, as it were. So he's they're all interacting with these like extremely kind of like they're all marginalized figures within the film industry, kind of having their own trials and tribulations, and then the day the day sort of ends on a potentially optimistic note. And then it skips ahead to, I guess, the climax, which we'll, we can talk about later. But um, I, I think I think the way that it parallels Sharon's Sharon Tate's experience in the movie theater with these with their experiences in their own worlds um, brings the movie into focus. It, it makes me it made me realize how the three were connected. Totally, and I, I'm hmm. I'm glad you brought that up because I think I didn't really uh, appreciate until sometime after I'd seen the movie what and how rich this film is in ideas and in mm-hmm. ideas that it presents formally. And that sequence in particular, I think is um, by placing those three characters in parallel, it is Tarantino is uh, saying something about the work of an actor and the different facets of an actor's work specifically mm-hmm. where Cliff and Rick are kind of two halves of an actor in mm-hmm. um, where Rick is the face and the the movie star persona and Cliff is the stuntman. So he's the one who does, um, who performs the fights and the Hmm. action sequences that um, are associated with the face of Rick Dalton, but that are actually physically performed by a different person and that Mm -hmm. they kind of um, have a different relationship to their occupation, even while they're both um, contributing to a single performance and then on the flip side you have Sharon Tate who um, as an actress really probably was um, just a face like she was seen as a face a body a beautiful young woman and uh, therefore had to have a different relationship to the actual um product of her mm-hmm. acting which I, I don't know I, I'm sort of butchering this but I I think that there's sort of this very lyrical way in which um, these three actors are shown to be um, sort of moving through the same obstacle course together kind of a holy trinity yeah okay. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and, and so I was thinking a lot about um, Tarantino's Death Proof, which we don't have to get too much into, but there are just some obvious parallels between the films, and um, and I think everything that he's done from that movie forward have kind of they've been part of this overall project of this historical revisionism he's doing, and this idea that um, movies and movie people can save or change history, <laughs> which is such a beautifully naive thing that you have to kind of love it, mm-hmm. even if you can find. I don't you can even find you know moral objections to the idea um and I understand that but so death proof is also about um stunt people right so Cliff's Cliff is a stuntman in in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and um death proof hinges upon this like battle royale between uh, an, uh, an evil stuntman his name is Stuntman Mike and these four stunt women who he comes across because he's 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 a serial killer and a stuntman and in the first half of death proof he 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 killed with his car he kills four women and in the second half of death proof four women who 
this time are actual movie stunt people take revenge upon him not even knowing what happened in the first half of the film so it becomes this almost like cosmic retribution of woman against man um but he always makes it so that actual movie people are doing the work you know inglorious bastards has a little bit of that too mm-hmm. with um um with the michael fassbender character he's sort of like he's a cinephile as you recall oh yeah um <laughs> so there's this there's this idea of like movies actually not just saving your life, but changing the course of history. And without, you know, spoiling too much what happens in this movie, that's very much what this is about. And it, it, it kind of opens your mind up to all the possibilities of what if, what if this happened this way? What if this happened this way? And what if it actually were movies that, that, that did that? I mean, it makes perfect sense because of the milieu of this film. It just is kind of a natural, what if they went to a different house for whatever yeah. reason? Yeah. <laughs> and Yeah. 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 And what if the superheroes and cowboys in the, our Saturday morning TV shows were actually capable of kicking ass? Right. Yeah. Yeah, we, I it yeah, it's 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 funny how that strikes me as charming as opposed to like, I don't know, in, infantile or something <laughs> or I don't know that in the same breath you might like criticize like superhero movies but be more charmed by something like this, by that kind of belief here. I I mean, I guess because it's something like this a movie this movie acknowledges them as like human characters first and it doesn't feel like character traits are grafted on to each of them um he, he i think he you know tarantino is successful at making them people yeah. um which i don't know I, I stepping back just in terms of the people that he's cast it's i mean I, it's hard for me to think of another movie um you know recently where you have a couple of just you know ginormous stars being this comfortable together and like never being any hint that 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 there's any sort of of the wrong sort of tension between them and just being so interestingly in step while also being really different you know and, and bringing not only like different characters but different styles like their their acting styles are, are, are different and they're just allowed to coexist um i don't know i i i, I like that dicaprio is always it's strange he's, he's not always a star i entirely buy most of the time yeah. as like a character but i still like him as just he's he's still a star he's like a guy who totally believes in stardom and being a star um and i and i for some reason i find that charming in him because i guess he puts it across in a way that i don't know a lot of other stars do. well these are beautifully cast parts yeah these, these two yes. main roles i mean uh, we, we've, we've already talked about how how good margot robbie is mm-hmm. as an up-and-coming actress and that's why it's exciting to have her in that role but brad pitt and Leonardo dicaprio are kind of a dying breed right mm-hmm. so they are two of the last movie movie stars in hollywood today yeah. so to, to people who actually headline movies and potentially can open movies as mm-hmm. it turned out they were able to do this weekend and right. that's exciting for the industry that yeah. there are still actually <laughs> movie stars out there right. but it's perfect for this movie is this movie about the end of an era 1969 yeah. um it's you know you have the end of the of the studio system or the movie industry as you know it or it had been on the wane in the late 60s as a, as the new Hollywood comes in but you also have the end of the 60s as as represented as we were saying earlier yeah. in broad strokes by the Manson killings so just I don't know seeing Leo DiCaprio especially I think as like a a symbol of that kind of stardom I think is very powerful and just kind of smart yeah. savvy casting Music Box Films presents Piranhas a vivid coming of age portrait based on the novel by Roberto Saviano author of Gomorrah A modern-day gangster story that IndieWire hailed smart and unrelenting, Piranhas follows teenage Nicola and his friends as they enter the violent, power-hungry world of the Neapolitan mafia with the plan to take as much as they can for as long as they can. But everything has a price. Piranhas opens Friday, August 2nd in New York at Film at Lincoln Center and expands August 9 to select cities.
Through his writings, photography, and original music, as well as interviews with his family, friends, and co-stars, Love Antosha is a celebration of the extraordinary unfinished life of actor Anton Yelchin. Opening Friday, August 2nd in LA and Friday, August 9th in New York. Visit AntonYelchinDoc.com for more information. I think a lot of people have talked about the the, the beauty of Brad Pitt in this movie. Mm-hmm. People are kind of in awe over his like fifty five year old physique, and his his. <laughs> there's that great scene where for no reason really he just takes his shirt off and he's, <laughs> as, he's, as he's fixing the antenna on the roof. It's and it's really one of the few times it's that I think Tarantino's ever fetishized a male body. It's really mm-hmm. nice to see. But also Leo DiCaprio is just somebody who I think maybe we take for granted as a as a heartthrob. I think he's just he's so charismatic here. Yes, and I think yeah. part of why he made so much sense in this role is that you have the sense for Leonardo DiCaprio that he shot to stardom very young and he was part of the biggest movie of all time when it came out and a heartthrob for young girls all around the world uh, at a very young age and then he's sort of he's been honing his craft since then so that I mean he's a he's a I think he's a tremendous actor and he didn't start out that way and I think he he really has had to learn over the course of his career um and and has clearly invested in his craft in a way that you can see. And I appreciated him taking on this role as sort of a punchline in in many moments Mm -hmm. in the film of sort of somebody who's so seriously committed to the work that he aspires to be doing as an actor and frequently frustrated by the limitations that are placed on him by the particular constraints of his own stardom and the the kinds of roles he gets cast in and um, the way that the system sort of shuffles him around the game board. And it's, uh, there's just something about the frustration uh, that the character expresses that felt very poignant coming from Mm. DiCaprio as as somebody who has uh, really, I think, earned his status after being potentially in a position to sort of cruise on his good looks at a young age and mm-hmm. didn't take that path. And I thought that that was another really nice dovetailing of performer and character who's also a performer. And Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, he's, 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 he's very committed in this film and, and there's, there's a the great sequence or uh, there's a great little moment rather in the movie where he's so frustrated at flubbing lines that he, he starts to really beat himself up and it's actually, it, it gets to, I, the audience was sort of laughing, but it gets to a darker place. Yeah. It actually started to really yeah. upset yeah. me because he was really hurting himself about yeah. that. And I thought that yeah. the, like the neuroses mm-hmm. of that life, that actor's life really came out. Yeah. Well, yeah, just the tremendous like insecurity and uncertainty of it, and and yeah, that that the, the sensitivity that makes you a good actor also makes it th- like the worst possible profession you could choose to do. You know, um, sort of comes across there. Um, well, and he also clearly does have a drinking problem. It's it's, it's right. made into kind of, I wouldn't say that it's 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 laughed off the screen, but it's made into kind of a punchline as alcohol so often is mm-hmm. in film, and something maybe we don't we don't talk about enough is just. Mm. Um, you know any reference to drinking or drugs is supposed to be hilarious and there's there's, there's quite a lot of that here too and i don't say that in a prudish way i say that in like a you know uh, try to be in a sensitive way um but the you know the, the at towards the end of the movie he's he's kind of walking around with this big sloshing right um blender of margarita <laughs> <laughs> which right. i'm laughing now because it's funny yeah. but i mean that's after he you know you've realized that he really does have a problem and that yeah. that affects the character there's a little bit of that throughout also with with brad pitt's character of um are these people going to be able to function in their in their 
daily lives are in there in whatever things they have to accomplish yes. while they're being either inebriated or under the influence of something. Right. Yeah. Are they, when, when, when the crisis moment hits, are they going to be able to perform? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, which I guess is yeah part of the fantasy that they will, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that they will be able to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, what do you, I mean, uh, I mean, along those, I was just about to say something about DiCaprio that I also like is just, just him as like this face of like, fresh face like american potential that's mm-hmm. it. he's like this young you know like it's, he's always been like this that that and and maybe maybe to to with the result that he's been put in movies he wasn't maybe yet totally ready to like yeah. you know maddie were just saying about i guess that titanic that he wasn't totally ready but people always just seem directors seem to see something in him. scorsese certainly yeah. sees something in him um just you know thinking of like the aviator or something you know um that is almost beyond him yeah yeah i agree you know what i mean yeah there's something not convincing about his performance in the aviator that also doesn't matter right right and i think that the arc between the aviator and wolf of wall street was a really fascinating Mm. because i think the wolf of wall street is sort of the apotheosis for him of just of his talents and Mm -hmm. you just it's such a bravura performance and he has so much fun with it and it feels like there was all this potential in the aviator that wasn't quite there yet yeah now yeah. and now we're sort of uh on the the decadent period of right. his career maybe <laughs> right <laughs> before, in a good way yeah before he, i mean he's 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 not what, what is he in her 40s still or yeah so he's but his career is already over <laughs> with this character right like this character's career is already like washed up um before he starts turning it around a bit um which i mean that's i don't know if we want to talk about you know what we were less enthusiastic about in the movie um but you know one thing is that that kind of fantasy that th- there is something someone used the word conservative mm, yes. for the for the fantasy of the movie a bit you know which um however you describe that you know whether it's like you know like two two guys or whether it's two white guys or it's like you know who who are you know gonna somehow like save the day or you know pull it out of their hat um and and are or at the very least are able to like survive and su- just subsist with their borderline careers um and you know what people feel about that and and even just returning to this full of the 60s narrative which i for one really went at this movie being very tired of (laughs) you know the last thing i wanted to see it's something like when i went to see the bob dylan um documentary it was a little bit even though that's dealing with like 70s um you know i i was like i don't want to see another victory lap about how the 60s were perfect and then everything went went to crap well there are a lot of received narratives and Mm -hmm. certainly around um um, the counterculture and certainly mm-hmm. around um, the Manson family. And I think that some, maybe people detect a whiff of that conservatism also because the film is, it, you have, it, it's basically movie stars, it's basically the wealthy movie stars, the pigs, right? Um, <laughs> who, who are saving, saving the day mm-hmm. and who are venerated at the expense of the counterculture, which is entirely depicted as right. the Manson clan. Yes, that's and, the only counterculture we see. Right. right. That's, a clear choice however i don't think tarantino is making a mistake there tarantino has made movies about people from all walks of life usually right. not um wealthy people mm-hmm. actually right and I, th- I think that he's interested in the marginalized and kind of like the weird pocket the, you know, pockets of weirdness certainly in los angeles mm-hmm. so i don't i think that it's a it's a choice so whenever they're you know they're railing against disgusting hippies or horrible hippies and right. whatever, it, it, they're they're laugh lines because you know you know that you're being asked to identify with these particular Hollywood people yeah. and that's what the narrative is um, so I don't know like yeah I mean 
a political reading of this film would probably not hold up to a lot of scrutiny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I think maybe that is why I came away immediately from the screening feeling um, like there was something sort of slight about the the messaging of the movie and it wasn't until some time had passed and I um, sort of thought about other elements of the film that I really appreciated it. But there's like the 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 sort of most superficial ideological reading of this movie is kind of nothing new it's kind of not uh i don't know it's 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 disappointing and there's a generosity to the vision of the film but there's not uh i don't know if there's a lot of um intellectual heft and i'm not saying i'm not even saying that in a in a dismissive way because i think that a lot of his films i think inglorious bastards is a movie that uses movies and movie um culture and history to interrogate history yes and how we perceive and watch things and understand things i think this movie plays with that a little bit but ultimately um is it's really it is another wish fulfillment fantasy right it's a what if this happened and I'm not sure it's entirely like on the other side when you come out on the other side of that what we're what we're supposed to take away from that Um, again I just saw it yesterday and I as I said at the beginning I'm still processing it I probably will feel something completely different a week from now a month from now 10 years from now Mm -hmm. I'll probably see this movie again because I enjoyed watching it so much yeah however um if we're going to give a little spoiler warning mm-hmm. on this podcast, yes. um, I and to move this away from a complete love fest, I think I think we're all enthusiastic about the film. I, I feel like you know this movie is in a way so much in my wheelhouse and so much in the wheelhouse of so many film people mm-hmm. that it's good for it to be a little yeah. suspect yeah. and to kind of, you know, take, to yeah. take a step back. And it's, it, it's, I don't think it's really challenging us. So maybe take a, take a, yeah, take a little, a little different view of it. Um, and apart from what we were just saying about the politics, I think that he's doing something as much as I love death proof. I think he is doing something similar here with saving, saving women on screen by punishing other women. And I think that that there's something going on in the last half hour with the repre- representation of violence, the, de- the, the degree t- to the, ex- the extremity of it, which really took me by surprise, even though it's Tarantino, I should have known it was coming. Um, I was, I was put off and I kept going back and forth in my head, whether like, is this necessary? Is this unnecessary? Is this sort of extreme gore? Um, is this the point or is this just him getting off on it? Where are we supposed to feel exhilaration? Are we not? I like having these questions. I like that it's not resolved. I, part of me thinks absolutely this movie had to end with complete horror because it is a film about the Manson murders, even though it takes a twist on it. It is about that. And if you don't build to this point of this actual crescendo of true horror, then what was the point at all? So I, I think that that needs to be there, but there's a certain amount of pleasure that it takes and i think that the audience response maybe verifies this that the film takes and the way it's shot and edited and acted in the really like horrifying massacre of of a couple of the the women who are part of the um of the manson attempted murderers in this case Mm. um yes we know the history we know what actually happened. We know what these characters actually did. We also know that these were extremely disturbed and brainwashed people. 
And we also know that in the world of this film, those things didn't actually happen. It actually becomes like a minority report thing in a way, right? <laughs> if it didn't happen, it didn't happen. Right. <laughs> so, so like, do they deserve the incredible punishment that's meted out upon them? And like the 10th time that woman's face was like bashed into the wall, I, I, I honestly, I couldn't look anymore. At the same time, I wondered if that's the point. I'm wondering if like my horrified reaction I'm laughing one moment. I'm really upset the next moment. I'm wondering if that's also part of the point. Uh, yeah, I think uh, these are all questions that are still open in my mind, and I don't quite uh, have a lot of answers for them. But I do think that the sort of present absence of the actual fate of Sharon Tate uh, is really haunting the ending of this movie. And the fact that we know that she was eight and a half months pregnant and stabbed to death in her home and that these characters, you know, the whole movie, we don't know uh, whether that is going to be shown in this film or whether there's going to be a sort of revisionist uh, interpretation and retelling um, in the lead up, but we know that that's what actually happened to Sharon Tate. And mm -hmm. so the fact that you're prepared for sort of bracing yourself for that outcome and then instead the violence is inverted and it's meted out on the people who we were expecting to do the violence mm -hmm. it felt i found it very cathartic in a way that then afterwards i was kind of kind of recoiled from the catharsis like you're saying like it was a weird uh sort of flipping of feelings that happened and i think i mean i personally was not um Weirdly, I didn't think about the ending violence as violence against women, which of course it is. And that was, I think, downplayed. And I do wonder about sort of the ethical ramifications of downplaying the gender of the Manson family members who went to kill Sharon Tate. I, I don't know. It's, mm. it's, again, none of this is resolved in my mind, but I think it's... Um, I got the sense that Tarantino hadn't, didn't have like a rigorous rationale for showing the violence in this way, in this particular context. I mean, I think he's, I think he's trying to achieve what you said that he did, which is catharsis. I think it does feel cathartic. I think then that there is potentially value in pushing that catharsis past the breaking point to a place where you're uncomfortable again. And I think that might have been the intention mm -hmm. even if it isn't that's the way it was yeah. for me and that's the, i'm sure that's the way it will be for many people um there was there was just a um there was a, a grotesqueness to it that might have been earned like i'm, I'm doing air quotes like earned by history but right. it's not earned by the film right. and that's an interesting i'm not i'm not saying that that's resolvable right. i think that's an interesting tension actually i think there's a similar thing going on in glorious bastards However, that's we're talking about the Holocaust and yes. Glorious Bastards, and right? A bunch of Nazis. Well, yeah, and, and so so there was there were a lot of arguments around that movie when it came out too. There was there were questions if there was moral equivalency going mm -hmm. on by saying is 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 his point? I remember Daniel Mendelssohn wrote a, an essay about whether this is making moral equivalency between um, you know the 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 Jews themselves and the Nazis mm. by showing this extreme violence. Are you saying that like oh you know violence is violence? Mm. Um, and then, of course, there were other people who thought that it was just like a Zionist fantasy. So it's these things are not 
are not so simple. And I think that Tarantino does have a kind of fetishism about violence. And I say that without, not necessarily with, um, even, not even as a critique, mm-hmm. but I just think it's obvious. You know, his, his, his movies are fetish movies of any kind. We've, we could talk mm-hmm. about what they are. It'd be boring to talk about what some of those fetishes are. We know what they are at this point. But I think um, it's, worth, it's worth questioning, um, you know, why violence is put on screen. And um, by the time it gets to the pool and the flamethrower, and everyone thinks it's just the most delightful, <laughs> delightful dispatching. I was, you know, I was genuinely upset. And um, I, I think that being upset is um, perhaps what I, what I should be feeling, yeah. even though yeah. it's also supposed to be catharsis. It's, it's I don't how know. you know you're human. <laughs> like, like you see the charred corpse floating in the pool and are <laughs> horrified by it. And that's kind of reassuring that you're horrified by it. Well, when you see, yeah, when you saw the, f- the, 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 the corpse itself, yeah. the chart, now we're doing complete spoilers. Yeah, so I'm glad, <laughs> no, no, we gave, Hey, we gave a fair warning. Yeah. Um, that, that I thought sent the message home that like, okay, this is his movie about the end of an era. Yeah. This is his movie about the violence that happened at the end of the sixties. And it is the most obvious you know, thing that you could put on screen, right? That that charred floating corpse. What comes after that is just so tender, yeah, and uh, so moving that yeah. I'm I'm having a hard time reconciling the extreme violence of that sequence with what comes after. But I was very moved by it. Yeah, I I think uh, the tenderness of the of the those last moments where um, you hear Sharon Tate's voice but you don't see her, and there's sort of this very much happily ever after kind of a um, final scene where Rick Dalton goes off to meet Sharon Tate and have a drink with her and it's um, it is jarring and I think it was the one moment where I felt disappointed in the Sharon Tate portrayal just because it is it comes off in that moment as one dimensional as just like she is this sainted Madonna figure who the movie uh, has no interest in treating as a three-dimensional person she's just this sort of symbol of perfect feminine uh, you mean in this where, when she's just a voice on the intercom yeah that that sort of clinches the the idea that if the manson women are the devil and um sharon tate is the virgin mary and it's just very cut and dry black and white um sort of simple reckoning of good versus evil and it's uh to me that was a little disappointing just given how nuanced marco roby's performance was in that role and how um it the movie did humanize her in other ways but uh all that being said i was very i i did find the ending to be um it was very moving. It was very, very emotional. One thing that I liked about keeping her off screen at the end, I think what I, what I really wanted, what I expected is, you know, her to come down with her eight and a half month pregnant belly to come down from the house and just appear on screen as kind of the central figure, the point, you know, and that she doesn't. Um, at first it jarred me so much because it seemed like that's what the film was leading to. But what I really ended up loving about it and, um, which I, which I think is what moves me the most. I'm trying to figure out why am I moved so much by that um, is because when you hear her on the intercom, she's completely safe. 
She's behind the fence. She's in her house. She is completely safe and the and happy. And the fence has stayed closed, and no one's getting by past that gate. And there's just something really like maybe nurturing about that, and deeply felt. And 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 just from a from a filmmaker who so often just you know pummels you into a submission as he does earlier in this film to end on that kind of graceful quiet note, yeah. keeping her off screen. Um, I was surprised. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was also kind of a tender moment just because it, it becomes a story that, that uh, Rick Dalton tells then. So like it's, it all becomes about the stories you're telling, you know, right away he's, he's, he's kind of enjoying the fact that he can casually tell this story about this terrible thing that just happened. So he's already like one step removed from it, from it somehow. Um, it, It doesn't even seem like it's been totally real to him. Um, the, you know the way that this changes the course of history is not just that Sharon Tate yeah. is saved, but that there's going to be like the biggest story coming out of Hollywood ever, <laughs> right? <laughs> you have this movie star who burnt this potential murderer to a crisp, right? And whose dog, I guess, chewed his balls <laughs> off. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> See, now we're going into real spoiler territory. And I actually was thinking. Um, with all the buildup since Can about like no spoilers and the studios telling people don't say anything, like, which, you padlocks know, on the print. Exactly. Um, <laughs> now that I've seen it, I think what they were really just trying to avoid was was not that it's a twist so much as that they didn't want people to, I think, focus on the violence. Mm. I think that this movie, the way it's being marketed, is being marketed as a kind of a casual, open air, yep. cool LA jaunt. I think that they don't want people to think this is your Tarantino. Yeah. You know, because you know, Death Proof and Glorious Bastards, Django are films that are that have extreme violence in them, and that's what his reputation is. Hateful Eight, all, they all do, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I think that they were trying to control the, the marketing story more than anything. Yeah, I I wouldn't disagree with, with wouldn't disagree with that um, because it does change the profile of the film, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and um, it, it it would be something you could really um, zero in on, um, you know, because yeah, there's a lot of old Tarantino some sort of pleasure in in sadism <laughs> basically yeah. at, at the end there um that that's kind of hard to, to to deny um but even though if if i did feel like it was it made sense in terms of the narrative because it's supposed to shock you and and if it's if it's if, if he's getting some pleasure out of it as well well maybe that's a problem <laughs> but but in terms of the narrative it did make sense that it should be something that should upset you and should shock you in some way that maybe similarly you know, the murders actually shocked people. And certainly at the time, I also just had like flashbacks to other movies, mm. um, not related to Manson, but other movies of like the late 60s, early 70s that are very bloody and violent and how all of that was kind of breaking just, just then, you know, you know whether it's stuff like Straw Dogs or something, it's just mm-hmm. where there was a lot of violence that clearly just grew out, grew out of something yeah. that was really disturbing people just about the era, about the moment. Mm. Um, so it's it's not hugely far removed from that lineage of violence that's like meant to especially compared to his other movies oh, it's true you know, it's I true know. i mean i mean you're coming off of bonnie and clyde yeah. this is the same year as easy rider mm-hmm. which yeah. you know famously ends in a shocking bit of violence that seems to come out of nowhere i think it i think it's perfect perfectly in keeping with that era of filmmaking and i think that if it didn't push it to this extreme place it wouldn't have the same effect that maybe those movies had yeah. um i think just because of the nature of the nature of the violence and who is seems to be receiving the most sadistic violence in the mm. film? It, it 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 raises questions, and um, 
I, I don't think it, they're so easy to dismiss. I mean, yeah. I think this, you know, we didn't mention Kill Bill, but I think a similar thing happens in Kill Bill, that that, that it was happening in Death Proof 2. Films that I admire, well, I admire Kill Bill Volume 1 greatly, and I do separate them. I think they're different <laughs> films. Um, I think that the fact that Kill Bill 1 ends on a cliffhanger and a very complicating complicating cliffhanger hmm. um, makes it a really interesting movie, an unresolvable movie. And then it kind of, every, when everything locks into place in part two, it kind of loses its mystique, or I think that there's just amazing scenes. But a similar thing is happening in those films in which you have this kind of, you know, kick-ass, um, re- revenge-seeking female protagonist, mm-hmm. but throughout you also see much violence meted out against other women mm-hmm. and yeah. her, actually, violence and torture. Yeah. And... Um, I think I th- uh, I don't think that it's necessarily, you know, more than what we've been looking at for the past 100 years of cinema. I don't mm-hmm. think that he, Tarantino needs to be taken to task for everyone else's sins. Mm-hmm. But if we're looking at him as an artist who has these particular hang-ups and the hateful eight, of course, mm-hmm. which it really, really did bother me, I have to say. Right. Um, yeah. I, th- I think that it's it's not, we can't dismiss those questions. Yeah. So where does Jackie Brown fit into all of this? I mean the perfect Jackie Brown. <laughs> <laughs> the perfect Jackie Brown. Yeah. I mean, I, I well, I, you know, I just think again, I think about the, sh- the shapes and structures of his movies so much, and um, and this, I guess, is the most like Jackie Brown in the in the way he would maybe describe it as like a, a hangout film, and it's, yeah. it's it's contemporary Los Angeles, and it has this sense of just kind of biding your time until something happens, and that's. Maybe it's Sally Menke, who was um, Tarantino's f- former um, editor, who edited everything up to *The Inglorious Bastards*. Who was she was just, I think, just a genius. Mm-hmm. I think there has been a, some, a sort of change in his film since. Yeah. Maybe it's her, but Jackie Brown is like the best paced, slow. I'm doing slow again. Air quotes. Sorry, everybody. I do air quotes. You can't see them. It's like <laughs> the best paced slow movie I've ever seen. Yeah. That movie starts. And you look at your watch, and two and a half hours have gone by. Yeah. Um, I think this one has a little trouble getting into that rhythm in yes. the same way as much as I admire it trying to do that rhythm Jackie Brown is just like some sort of alchemy happened yeah, there you know f- that Jackie Brown feels completely effortless in the way that no other Tarantino movie does I think like yeah. it just feels so straightforward yeah and I think part of it has to do with just the amount of fascinating characters mm-hmm. on screen this movie really kind of keeps it th- there's some interesting side notes here and there but this one really yeah. keeps it to the 3 and I, there are varying degrees of interest throughout, but Jackie Brown is one of those movies where just every single person on screen is just so perceptively written and yes. so wonderfully performed. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just, just kind of returning to that that Tarantino's sense of creating a world, you know, where you're kind of meeting people, maybe not for a long time, but you're sort of imagining what their lives are like off screen. And part of my attraction for his films has always been that he's showing you a bit more of the off screen you know, stuff that other people would consider irrelevant um, than, than other people do. Um, but still, there's lots you can you can imagine more. Um, I like the child actor in this movie. Oh, she's <laughs> wonderful. Oh, I did not like her. Oh, oh you didn't like her? Oh. <laughs> oh, I mean, maybe it was intent. Maybe she was supposed mm-hmm. to be obnoxious, but I just didn't. I didn't. It's, I, I didn't buy her in the way that um, I, I'm. I'm picky with child actors. I can tend to be pretty hard on them, but um, you're I notorious just, for life. that, man. You're, you're always beating up on the child actors. But you have uh, a dartboard. Yeah, I. She totally took me out of the moment. It was. Oh like, really? Yeah. yeah. I, I. don't know. Maybe that's my problem. It's I mean, just me. I mean, I don't know. Child actors. I mean, the whole phenomenon is—it's so bizarre that a child should be 
acting or having to act or know what acting is as opposed to playing or pretending. I don't know. They already seem somewhat unusual figures. So it, it made sense to me that, that this one, this is, this is the, the child actor that um, Rick Dalton is, is co-starring with and at one point is sitting down chatting with. And, and I love that scene. He's like sitting down reading like a Westerns novel, like a Pulp Fiction basically about the Western. And she's reading a biography of Walt Disney because <laughs> she's, she has her eyes on the prize. I just love the contrast between them. I don't know. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I enjoyed her a lot. The, I mean, per, the precociousness is <laughs> so extreme that you would think that it's it's like it's a parody of child actors in a way. Yeah. And, I, and I, I don't know that worked for me. I will say I loved the scene where they're acting together when they're actually on oh, set yeah. and um, in a scene together. The, the, the characters are performing a scene together. And it's just I, I, I thought that was a really lovely sequence. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, it was just when they were having the conversation that I just didn't quite buy the girl. I, and maybe mm. it's the way she was written rather than the way she was acted. But mm. I just, I was just like, yeah, you don't seem real to me. And everyone else in this movie seems pretty real to me. But yeah, well, that's interesting to, 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 because <laughs> to, maybe, you know, if we were to talk about what feels real and what yeah, doesn't, yeah, right? well, that's true. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to think. Do, does anything in this movie feel real to me? I guess their, their, yeah, their neuroses and their kind of daily rhythms feel real in a way but the movie's constantly negotiating with what real you know what's real and what yeah. isn't that yeah. i i don't know if i was if i was getting realism from this movie mm-hmm. but it also wasn't extremely artificial it wasn't mm-hmm. like death proof or mm-hmm. glorious bastards mm-hmm. so yeah. it, but I, yeah. it's more like jackie brown in that way there is a realist mm-hmm. aesthetic perhaps yeah i weirdly i felt this as i think i i I don't want to know what I said on, on the, the can podcast because I'm sure it was a weird <laughs> overstatement, but I said something about feeling a realism in this that, that just um, really struck me just maybe it was a, mo- a really an emotional one as well, but also that, that the various markers of the time, maybe cause I didn't, you know, grow up in LA or something. They didn't feel like they were being thrown at me like signposts, you know, where he had this kind of this heightened thing where in, in a lot of his past movies where like any kind of pop culture thing is just it's 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 like glowing on the screen yes. for you to to appreciate I, I didn't feel like that was coming at me michael's about to disagree with me <laughs> no i'm not disagreeing at all so i just wanted to make the point that literally the signposts <laughs> there are signs. the beautiful that sequence yeah. where the, the la neon yes. lights are going on by william klein you know it was just so know that. beautiful I know. this was true, this yeah. movie Maybe more than through his writings, photography, and original music, like as well as interviews just, with his yeah, family, friends, and co-stars. Love Antosha is a celebration of the extraordinary kind of unfinished life of actor but Anton Yelchin. Open Friday, August second in LA, and the, Friday, August This is with Robert Richardson, who is shot most of his recent film. Most of his recent film, most since Bastards. Right, or maybe even before. Well, he shot Kill Bill. That's true. Yeah. But then, he, but then Tarantino shot Death Proof himself, which is kind of mind blowing because of the choreography, the action mm-hmm. choreography. Um, but yeah, there's there's usually uh, you know m- there are moments in all of his films where he does some sort of elaborate you know um, crazy long take that starts here and ends there and will go on for you know five minutes. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a lot of that here. This is actually it's a it's it's I agree with you. It's like a luscious, beautiful film, but it doesn't call attention to itself that much. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. He's kind of he's kind of able to let the space speak for itself more yes. than, than he is in other rather than like dice, slicing and dicing using it and 
subjecting it to something else. Um, I mean, one movement that I did keep on noticing, but I think it was purposeful, is when he's kind of gliding over the house to move from one yeah. house to the other. He does maybe a couple of times. I almost thought there was a drone involved there, and, and that would have been the, the ultimate like un-Tarantino thing to do, I think. Um, but I, I was know. wondering that too, but I don't think so. You don't think so, yeah. Maybe two, I look like a crane Maybe shot. a composite tr- crane shot, but they go pretty far over that roof. I don't know. You can go over a roof with a crane. <laughs> next, next podcast, we will do that. <laughs> we will go on a crane over a roof. Um, but yeah, I thanks for 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 name checking the the cinematographer because he's. Um, it's strange to say he's unappreciated, but I think people just look up his work, like stretching back to like natural born killers and everything. Yeah. He's just an incredible innovator of like the past you know thirty years. Um, that that because he's often working for very you know outspoken auteurs yeah, maybe it's sort of forgotten but yeah pretty pretty key um cinematographer um well i think we're sort of we've 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 spoken a lot and there's probably more to be said i don't know if you have any last thoughts or um, this movie is all about real estate and specifically <laughs> la real estate and all of its weird uh idiosyncrasies hmm. that's it's my it's my Twitter take. It's your Twitter take. Yeah. It's the beginning of a whole new podcast. Yeah, <laughs> we should we should start next week. Film real estate. Um, no, I agree. That's a really good point. Mm. I mean, that has to do also just with the things we're saying about the space and yeah. the driving and the signs yeah. and just being in L.A. and in and, and Los Angeles. You know, we're we live in New York, so we're kind of supposed to ha- hate L.A. I guess, but I, I actually really <laughs> like L.A. I love L.A. and I I love the f- the feel of driving around there at night. And this movie just gets that. Yeah, better than anything I've seen in a long time. Yeah. No, for sure. That I mean, he, there there are a lot of driving scenes, and and each one is has its different little feel to it. Um, all right. Well, we can we can wrap up. We can park and wrap <laughs> up right there. Uh, but thank you, everyone listening. I I hope we didn't you know disturb any of you by talking <laughs> about you know the movie, the uh, actual last the, half hour, the, of the this actual movie. movie. Um, but uh, there we are. Well, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Through his writings, photography, and original music, as well as interviews with his family, friends, and co-stars, Love Antosha is a celebration of the extraordinary, unfinished life of actor Anton Yelchin. Opening Friday, August 2nd in L.A. and Friday, August 9th in New York. Visit AntonYelchinDoc.com for more information. Based on the novel by Gamora author Roberto Saviano comes Piranhas, a vivid coming-of-age story set in mafia-controlled Naples that IndieWire calls a gripping modern riff on Goodfellas. Opens Friday, August 2nd in New York and expands August 9th to select cities.